Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Today is a beautiful day outdoors, but it's also a wonderful opportunity to deal with some other issues concerning the end times. <laughs> uh, today is episode 27 in our podcast titled The Apocalypse is Coming, uh, which is also the title of the book that I have recently had published. Uh, so episode 27, we want to deal with the uh, contrast between premillennialism and amillennialism. Basically, we're asking the big question, which approach to interpreting the Bible concerning the end times, the fulfillment of prophecy, is the better approach? Jim, let me In ask fact, you. This, yes, go ahead. That really, that reminds me of a question that I, uh, long ago, but not very far away, asked of one of my seminary props, and I think it was Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Uh, I caught him after a, a class, I believe, on uh, Bible interpretation or uh, hermeneutics. And at the time, I had a notion that a lot of strict theology was pretty technical and academic, but especially eschatology, the study of end time issues. I asked Dr. Rodmacher, do premillennialism and amillennialism have any direct practical consequences? I was really startled at the speedy and emphatic response that the consequences were major. Too bad he didn't have any time to elaborate. And, <laughs> and so, well, I, I, I'll have to say, Jim, that over the years I discovered what he meant. But perhaps as never before, those practical consequences for every believer are, uh, are really upon us. Well, John, you are hitting the nail on the head, so to speak, because that's a significant uh, uh, difference between amillennialism and premillennialism in my understanding of the issues uh, and such a vital matter of what practical consequence are these two big ideas about understanding uh, the end times. And they are really different approaches to interpreting the Bible and more specifically interpreting prophecy. I think this is such a serious matter that I'd like to call this the uh, faults and failure of the amillennial approach to the Bible. In other words, we want to do an expose of the dangers of amillennialism. Uh, what are the dangers and pitfalls? So be, before we get into some of those uh, obvious uh, matters, we need to define our terms. Our listeners may not be acquainted with amillennialism and premillennialism. Uh, these are basically general and broad approaches to interpreting the Bible, especially the end time things or eschatology, as you already referred to it. Amillennialism contrasts the other broad approach to interpreting eschatology, which is premillennial belief. Both terms refer to what the Bible teaches about a future kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth at the end of this age. It concerns whether or not Jesus Christ will reign on earth uh, as we believe he promised, prior to the coming of the new heavens and new earth. Amillennialism, by the very word ah, millennialism, the ah in front of millennialism means no. It believes that there is no uh, coming of uh, Jesus Christ in actuality to reign on this earth, uh, on the present earth. But that the future, according to amillennialism, involves only a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, 
we go directly from this age to the new heavens and new earth without an intervening reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Well, Jim, can I, can I ask something? Would it, would it be fair to say that amillennialism uh, would teach, uh, would interpret the end time events and teach that what we describe as the millennial kingdom actually exists right now? Uh, yes, and uh, that touches upon a, an, an important issue because our listeners may ask, well, how can the reign of Jesus Christ be going on right now? And that's because amillennialism, in its approach to prophecy, said that uh, much of prophecy is figurative or spiritual, uh, even allegorical. Those are different terms referring to the same thing. We are not to take the words uh, literally concerning the promise of Jesus Christ's return, his reign on earth, and many other things, but rather uh, spiritualize them. Premillennialism says, let's take the words of prophecy in their usual normal sense we get that sense from studying the context uh from studying history and the grammar and let's take them in their normal way and if we do that we end up with a premillennial view of the end times so here let me share with our listeners uh several facets and uh uh aspects to the teaching and practice of amillennialism in contrast to premillennialism First of all, amillennialism confuses two future realities of God's presence on earth. The messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, is uh, distinct, we believe, uh, as adherence to premillennialism, and it differs from the new heavens and new earth. And I think that if we could go to scripture, and, and this is such an important issue and brings such tremendous practical consequences, I think we'll reserve for a future podcast or episode uh, the distinction between the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and new earth. But for now, uh, let me just say a few things. Uh, Isaiah 66 is one passage in the Old Testament that prophesies the coming of the new heavens and new earth. But Isaiah also describes Jesus Christ's reign uh, on this earth when it will be a time of universal peace. Uh, there will be a lack of hostility between people and between the animal kingdom and people and so forth. We have beautiful descriptions of this in the book of Isaiah. Uh, and in the New Testament is Revelation 20 that describes the millennial kingdom. And only do we get to the uh, new heavens and new earth with chapters 21 and 22. Uh, so the new heavens and new earth are not Jesus' reign, but a wholly new era in which God the Father and God the Son jointly reign in the New Jerusalem. Our listeners have probably heard that terminology, the New Jerusalem. That only appears in the new heavens and new earth. Nothing is said about that in Revelation 20, describing the Messianic kingdom or millennial kingdom. Mm. You know, it, it, it is a significant fact that uh, very clearly there are statements that separate the two things. But again, what we're affirming here is that the millennial kingdom is confused and made to be one and the same as the messian, uh, pardon me, the new heavens and new earth. Uh, so that there isn't an, an uh, actual existence of Jesus' reign on the earth as we know it. But notice some of the statements uh, in Revelation 20. It tells us that Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. And in fact, that terminology, John, a thousand years occurs six times in the first seven verses of Revelation 20. 
when we go to the new heavens and new earth, no such limitation on in time is made. But instead, that, that uh, time period is unending. It is what we would call eternity. It is when we experience everlasting life. Uh, another significant contrast is that uh, it tells us in, in Revelation 21 and 22 about the new heavens and new earth that God will dwell among his people directly. There will be no tears, no death, no suffering. Uh, all things are made new. None of that is said about the messianic kingdom in chapter 20. Uh, the millennial kingdom is going to be on this earth as it presently exists. Uh, people will be here. Uh, many people will be here in normal uh, physical bodies. The saints will be in glorified bodies. But uh, time will go on as it is uh, presently in this age and be measured by years, namely a thousand of them, a very long time. But uh, the two periods are distinct, it seems, in Scripture, especially when we get to the end of uh, Revelation. Uh, so one big reason, therefore, that uh, I feel that pre, uh, amillennialism comes up short in regards to God's future design, his design for the future earth, is because uh, amillennialism, that which denies a messianic reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, uh, confuses the two future realities, the messianic or millennial kingdom versus the new heavens and new earth. But in another greater way, amillennialism is wrong on its interpretation of the Bible in contrast to premillennialism. Its figurative spiritual approach uh, lacks uh, convincing, it seems to me, when in prophecy, such promises of Jesus' physical com coming again to this earth are put side by side with his first coming. For example, in Zechariah 9.9, uh, we're given the prophecy that Jesus would come riding on a donkey into Jerusalem and be heralded as king. That was fulfilled, the New Testament tells us, on Palm Sunday. But the next verse of Zechariah says that uh, he will reign from sea to sea. Uh, it's paralleled by passages in Isaiah talking about Jesus Christ's reign on the earth. And so verse 10 has not been fulfilled, whereas verse 9 has. So again, premillennialism wants to interpret these verses on the same level. Verse 9 is literal, verse 10 is also literal. And there's no indication in the text that somehow we should change and jump from in one interpretation to a different kind of interpretation right. between verses. Right. Uh, you know, thirdly, amillennialism destroyed the hope of Christians for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, quoting the Aramaic, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And this is a hope that is described repeatedly in the New Testament. And we deal with the imminency of Jesus Christ's return. He could return quickly. But, pre, but our millennialism denies that he's going to return in such a literal fashion. Uh, any comments about that? Well, you know, when when you speak about his return momentarily, I think the uh, the technical term for that is is imminence. Uh, how would you describe it other than just uh, you know something can happen in a moment? How would you describe imminence, Jim? And uh, does an amillennial approach to Daniel or Matthew twenty four or Revelation or a fistful of uh, other New Testament texts 
weaken the concept of imminence? Well, you know, there are several elements that go into my answer to this. And uh, I discuss it more fully in my book, uh, The Apocalypse is Coming, in the introduction. And I cite there a significant uh, uh, qualification that go to the term imminence. If we're referring to the rapture of the church, yes, we can say that that may occur seemingly at any moment in time as we are now experiencing it. Uh, I like the phrase that I borrowed from someone else that I quote in the book, and that is this. Imminence means that Jesus Christ can come at any time. On the other hand, there is no time when he cannot come. In other words, we cannot say steadfastly, well, he cannot come today, uh, because the various prophecies will all quickly fall into place if that is the case. And scriptures do point to various signs of the time that will take place. Uh, I think of 1 Thessalonians, or, or rather 2 Thessalonians 2, where the Thessalonian believers made the mistake thinking that they were already in the end times, the day of the Lord. And Paul reminds them, well, that can't come until first there's a great tribulation where the Antichrist will appear and be revealed. And also there is a great apostasy or departure from the faith that will occur beforehand. So mm -hmm. Paul is in a sense uh, setting up various events that must occur before the final step of the great tribulation. We believe the rapture occurs before that and therefore, that is an unheralded, unremarkable, uh, or uh, an event that is not accompanied by various signs. So I'd like to leave that uh, for now and, and let our readers uh, reflect upon that, our listeners, and perhaps uh, reading in the book as well. Well, may, may I just add one thing before we uh, leave it on the table? It, sure. it, seems, it, it seems to me... Uh, that if uh, imminence is reduced or uh, diminished uh, in any way, then all of Jesus and the uh, apostles' uh, directions and commands to be watchful and to be on the alert uh, lose their effect. They're to know they're to no practical uh, immediate purpose. And, and, well, those, that... and, th and those warnings, those are not just commands, they are warnings uh, to be alert and to be watchful. Yes, I think that you made a significant point about that. Let me go on and deal with a couple other features uh, or several more features in which I think amillennialism fails as a general approach to prophecy of scripture. Okay. I, note, I note that amillennialism destroys uh, how Christians viewed eschatology or contradicts how Christians viewed eschatology during the first 400 years of the church. It is a common opinion that uh, the church was predominantly uh, premillennial. The apostolic fathers, of which uh, we have Clement and uh, others uh, earlier uh, with him, but then Irenaeus a little bit later, uh, all of these early church fathers believed that Jesus Christ was going to return and set up a kingdom. Uh, that went on for 400 years. It was only during the time of Augustine in the 5th century that we begin to get the uh, first teachings uh, becoming prevalent that deny premillennialism and adopt an amillennial approach. And part of that was determined by the time that uh, Augustine was living in as Rome as an empire was beginning to fade. 
Uh, and during this time, that approach to scripture began finding other meanings other than the uh, literal approach. And eventually, four different meanings were found in scripture. So you begin with the literal, and then you go to the spiritual and the moral and mm -hmm. the alleg uh, anagogical, that's uh, comparing it with the heavens to come, and so forth. And uh, this multiple uh, uh, way to interpret scripture predominated then from the time of Augustine up until the Reformation. We are grateful to uh, the leaders of the Reformation that they rejected that multiple meaning of scripture. But unfortunately, during uh, regarding prophecy, uh, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli uh, did not return to a literal approach to prophecy, to interpreting eschatology. Uh, you know, amillennialism also is, I think, part of the deceit of Satan to destroy the confidence in the return of Jesus Christ. You know, there are four general approaches to end time events, as I reflect upon that issue. Uh, one approach is to say, well, there is no end. Time is going to go on as we know it. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change that and so forth. There is no target at the end that will bring this period of history to an end. That's view number one. Then secondly, there is a view from uh, certain Christians, so-called, who say that prophecy of the second return uh, of Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, has failed. Prophecy has failed. Uh, these interpreters say that uh, the promises of Jesus' return point to A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. And they interpret uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21 uh, this way. But we note that, the uh, again, uh, the signs that Jesus said would accompany his return, such as signs in the heavens and on the earth and so forth, were not fulfilled in A.D. 70. And so uh, this interpretation, which uh, maintains that prophecy failed to come to pass, that is, the prophecy of Jesus' return failed, uh, that's held by uh, a lot of liberal theologians who approach scripture. When we get to amillennialism, they look toward an end time all right. They look toward uh, uh, the conclusion of this age, but they jump over, as it were, the millennial kingdom and go immediately to the new heavens and new earth. So that's the third approach to the millennial kingdom. Uh, the fourth and final approach is the premillennial view, and that's what we're trying to support and justify today. So uh, during the first 400 years of the church, uh, premillennialism prevailed, and I'm suggesting that uh, a denial of that kingdom now by the church, uh, by Christians throughout uh, Christendom, is part of satanic deceit to destroy confidence and hope in the return of Jesus Christ. It discourages uh, many people from reading the prophetic portions of the Bible. I recall the experience, John, of being in an open uh, uh, town hall discussion about a particular topic that was on the ballot here in Oregon. Uh, mm -hmm. It was about uh, the death penalty. And uh, I was sitting in a uh, semicircle during a live broadcast of this on a Sunday night. And uh, I was wondering what I could say to uh, justify uh, biblical belief in the death penalty. And all kinds of various people were arguing, well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us to forgive our enemies, don't take revenge, and so forth. And I thought, well, what can I say to give a total picture of what the Bible says about this? And so with the time running out, I 
had time to say one or two sentences, and I said this. <laughs> Those people who believe in the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount should believe in Jesus Christ as the warrior returning from heaven, according to Revelation 19, at the Battle of Armageddon, at the end of the age. And that's the time was up, and the broadcast was over with, and so forth. And when we were off the air, soon a group of people surrounded me, and they said this. What are you talking about? What is this idea that Jesus Christ is going to return as a warrior from heaven? Where'd you get that idea? And I said, uh, it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And then I said to them, well, what church background do you have that you don't know this? And on this particular uh, occasion, they said, uh, we're uh, of the Lutheran church. They had never heard a sermon or any teaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so I think this somewhat uh, characterizes a lot of teaching that's going on in Christendom and uh, the lack of knowledge and information that pastors and others are giving to people about the last uh, great events of this age as recorded in all kinds of prophecy and especially in the Revelation. Uh, you know, I think that amillennialism is sort of, of the same kind of error that the Thessalonian believers had fallen into. I referred to this earlier, but in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, these believers had mistaken what Paul had taught them and decided that the day of the Lord was on the verge of fulfillment. And Paul says, no, that can't be the case because first the apostasy has to occur and then the man of lawlessness be revealed. And in a similar way, Amillennialism is asserting that the next thing in God's program is the spiritualized day of the Lord, because it's not going to involve judgment of the nations on this earth and the binding of Satan for a time period, but instead we're going directly to the new heavens and new earth. So in a sense, Amillennialism is saying uh, prophecy has come to its fulfillment in a spiritual way. Uh, we're on the verge of the day of the Lord, and the next big thing is going to be uh, the new heavens and new earth. So the, I would I would say then you you make it sound like, and and I'm sure you're going to uh, respond to this that uh, what the what the Bible describes as the uh, days and years of uh, tribulation for the whole earth are all spiritualized and. If that is the case, uh, how do believers that take the amillennial approach, or at least are in churches that have never spoken of the end time events as actual occurrences, uh, how, how do they manage to handle practically uh, the things that we see happening today that are previews of those things that would occur during the tribulation? Well, in a sense, it would it occurs to me, John, that uh, as you use the term there, previews or portents of the end times, that's all they ever are. Uh, there is not an actual fulfillment of various things. In my book, uh, and I actually have the page numbers written down here, uh, the apocalypse is coming on page 15 and again on pages 29 through 30. I list about uh, 25 or more things that are lost in regards to interpreting the end times. And so a few of these uh, I'll, I'll cite here for just a moment. 
there is no special tribulation period. There's no man of lawlessness or the Antichrist to come as an actual historian, historic figure. Uh, there's no resurrection of tribulation saints. There's no type of the Antichrist drawn from uh, uh, past uh, evil kings of the past, such as uh, Antiochus IV uh, in the second century BC. Uh, there's no second coming of Christ in power and glory to this earth. And Jesus uses those terms himself to, to describe his coming in Matthew 24, verse 30. And then there's really no battle of Armageddon uh, or battle of Gog and Magog as prophesied by the Old Testament and depicted in Revelation 19. Uh, there's no millennial reign of Christ on earth because he's reigning now in the church. And on and on, we could list additional things. So we go through them, and there are about 25 of them cited in my book. You know, in my book, I discuss the non-millennial view of these things, and I cite a couple modern contemporary interpreters. And uh, when you come to, Dan to uh, Matthew uh, 13, 11, Jesus says, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are being depicted by the parables I'm teaching you, Jesus says. Well, that phrase reflects Daniel chapter two, the mysteries of the kingdom. And our millennialists say, well, you know, uh, Daniel's teaching is now being left behind. Uh, Jesus is introducing something new, a spiritual form of the kingdom, where the Jews only look for a physical kingdom, uh, someone uh, in the line of David to take a, a actual rule over the earth. Jesus is saying, well, you were wrong in thinking of that because I'm introducing something new and unexpected. That is a spiritual reign. And I, I want to reign in people's hearts. And as people become born again, as people accept Jesus Christ as Savior, they enter a kingdom, his kingdom spiritually. And so that is how uh, amillennialism deals with the promise of Jesus' kingdom and reign. The big problem with that view is that where in the text does Jesus ever say, uh, we need to reinterpret Daniel, we need to get away from your expectation of a physical kingdom and think only of a spiritual kingdom? Right. Now, the truth is that the spiritual kingdom is real, and it's found in the Old Testament, too. And I think Daniel was a part of that. He was, in a sense, born again, just like Abraham, by putting faith in the God of Israel. But that doesn't remove the promises of an actual time when Jesus will come to reign on this earth, as found in all kinds of prophecies, including Daniel chapter 2 and 7 and so forth. Right. So there's a tremendous loss of biblical truth uh, if we take an amillennial approach. Uh, you know, it's also a false worldview. You know, when we talk about worldview, we're talking about uh, what is it that people think about in regards to what is the truth, uh, what is moral, and what is real. And on each of those three points, I find that amillennialism uh, is faulty. It undermines the truth. It falsifies eschatology in that way. Uh, it also falsifies the depth of evil. When we think of what is moral, it falsifies the depth of evil in the, evil in the world today and in the future. You may say, well, how is that? Well, because it teaches that Satan is bound today by the preaching of the gospel. That falsified the reality of evil going on today. And, and I think our listeners will all 
agree that things do not seem to be getting better with Satan bound, supposedly, but more and more evil is arising. And we need only look at the current headlines of our newspaper or listen to uh, broadcasts on our, our handheld um, cell phones or uh, other mead, means of media to realize that uh, the growth of evil, deceit, lies, false, and fake news, and so forth is increasing. Right. So it falsifies reality. And then on the third issue of uh, what is real, that is reality, the conflict between good and evil. Uh, we, as believers, every believer experiences that con- experiences the conflict between good and evil in our daily experience. And Paul warns about this, and he personally uh, relates to us a uh, how real it was to him. Uh, Many commands in the New Testament are to be on guard against Satan. Well, why would that command be given if he's bound? And so uh, amillennialism, in my view, gives a false view of a worldview, undermining the truth, uh, falsifying reality, and uh, not fully embracing uh, evil that is in the world today. You know, amillennialism also undermined the concept of the inaugurated kingdom. Uh, Most uh, Christians today embrace uh, a view of the kingdom that says it has been inaugurated. It is both here, but not yet. That's a good way to express a premillennial view. Jesus had brought the kingdom. He announced that he was. John the Baptist announced that the kingdom was at hand. But never had the kingdom fully come in the sense that Jesus Christ had the territory and the authority of king as a king to rule over uh, a people or the earth, unless you're going to spiritualize it all. Right. And so what what amillennialism does is uh, take that idea of the inaugurated kingdom and embrace it as fully here. It's a spiritual kingdom fully realized now in the preaching of the gospel and the acceptance of Jesus Christ as savior. So really, an adherent of amillennialism cannot embrace the second part of that rubric here, but not yet. Uh, the not yet is already here. So they, we could summarize their view as here and really here. And let that be the rubric of amillennialism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, finally, amillennialism undermines the moral imperative that accompanied the teaching about the sudden return of Jesus Christ. I know, John, that you wanted to say some more about that, and I'll let you do that. Well, the moral moral imperative has to do uh, with a particular word, uh, at least from from one perspective. And And that particular word is perseverance. It's very interesting to... Uh, do a word study on the concept uh, of perseverance, both the noun uh, and the uh, verb in the New Testament and whatnot. And you'll find that uh, the whole concept of perseverance, particularly under the Greek term that's used there, uh, almost, uh, well, let me see, 47 times and uh, well about, three dozen of those times, it is connected directly with end time events, uh, with the salvation that is to be fulfilled, with uh, our going to heaven, uh, with rewards that will be coming as a part of the uh, end times or following the end times. And the whole notion of perseverance, especially 
in the context of difficulty and tribulation uh, begins to lose its importance. I think uh, sometime uh, farther on down this uh, list of, or this uh, uh, number of broadcasts that we'll be doing, uh, we, it would be beneficial to talk about the importance of perseverance uh, to our salvation. And uh, frankly, uh, I think uh, if, if you get to an amillennial approach, just like uh, imminence and hope, uh, perseverance is uh, dealt quite a blow and uh, its, its importance uh, is lessened dramatically. Well, yes, John, I agree with that. And I'd like to dedicate a future episode uh, to perseverance. And there's so much to say there in regards to that. As we bring this episode to a conclusion, I want to remind our listeners that we've been dealing with the contrast between an amillennial and a premillennial approach to the end times, really to the interpretation of all of prophecy. It's our, my conclusion at least that amillennialism is one of the more uh, significant distortions of the church's understanding of the end times. And that has gone on now for almost 500 years. Thankfully, the Lord has raised up uh, uh, interpreters of scripture that have returned us to what the Bible says in its normal, ordinary meaning of terms. So I hope our listeners have uh, grasped that we're dealing with the issue of what is at stake in the contrasting approaches to end times prophecy. It's a significant issue and uh, it deserves a, a great deal of attention. With Thank you, John, for helping us today. You betcha. An issue with lots of practical consequences. We'll look forward to the next occasion, Jim. Yes. Thank you, John. Okay. Have a good day now. You too. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, it is a uh, fairly uh, a fair day today, and we want to come to a new episode in our podcast the Apocalypse is Coming. This is episode number 28. And we're going to get with a special topic today in light of uh, current events. I think our listeners will appreciate this. Uh, we're going to deal with the question, how should the judgment of the end times influence our vote for president? In other words, voting for president in light of the coming apocalypse is a very important issue, especially since we're uh, only about two weeks away from the uh, general election in our country. So we're dealing with the judgment that comes at the end of the age and how that gives direction for voting this November 3rd. The vote in this presidential election ought to take place in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure our listeners are somewhat puzzled immediately by this. What does, (laughs) they may think, what does the uh, judgment at the end of the age, during the end times, at the end of the end times, what relationship does that have with voting for president of the United States? Well, I think that they will be intrigued by what we are about to say. And, well, uh, Jim, go ahead, John, and set the setting for us relative to the rise and fall of nations. Okay. I, I, I... Just as an introductory comment, uh, at least from my uh, end of the conversation, this is this is the ultimate. Uh, I suspect in uh, in an expression of practical theology. 
Yes, I guess so. so. <laughs> Here's a, it, it's very interesting when you think of uh, the rise and fall of uh, rulers. Uh, that, that issue, the rise and fall of rulers and actually of nations, is, uh, I would suggest, a major theme of human history. Generally speaking, uh, when you think about it, it's inherently a political process. It's filled with uh, dominant personalities and their supporters and detractors, uh, those people's agendas. And it's also filled with uh, wealth and influence and uh, intrigue and deception. And in the case of representative democracies, Jim, it involves the courting of the people by every conceivable means. Now, this year particularly, uh, the more brutal it seems to be, the more conflict that attends the process, the more unspiritual it seems to be. However, if we take that view, we deny what the Bible teaches about the process. For we find in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2 particularly, but also uh, reference uh, from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, two places in chapter 4, that it is ultimately God himself that both raises up rulers and nations and takes them down. Political processes, whatever their stripe, merely function as one of his means of doing so. To deny this is not just to deny what scripture says, but to lessen our spiritual spot responsibility to involve ourselves to the extent we are able to participate in the process. And all the more so where there are so many spiritual issues hanging in the balance. Yes, John, you've, gave, you've just given a great uh, introduction to the basic concept of why should voting count at all, or why should Christians vote, uh, because it is one of the elements involved in God's determination of the rise and fall of, of kingdoms and, and governments. Uh, it just so happens that in our particular society, it is by representative democracy, and voting is the chief means by which uh, governments come and go. And so I hope that uh, our listeners, uh, all of them realize the importance of voting in this presidential election and there are, current, and, and there are critical issues at stake. Uh, so let me uh, give a further uh, biblical uh, support for this whole idea. There's clear exhortation in scripture that we should live in the light of the return of Christ and the end of the age. Uh, several passages throughout the New Testament and uh, they have their counterpart in, in basic ways in the Old Testament, uh, give us several compulsions by which we ought to live day by day. We can say, uh, for example, the command of Christ, commands of the apostles, we ought to uh, sanctify and, and set apart ourselves unto obedience to God and to the uh, commands of Christ. Uh, but we are also compelled by the coming events of the end. And these events uh, are on the horizon. Uh, we've dealt with many of uh, the signs of the times and we'll return to that topic in future episodes. Uh, but let me uh, cite a biblical uh, compulsion, uh, a compelling that comes from 2 Timothy 4, 1 and following, which are among the last written words of the Apostle Paul. 
He lists all sorts of things that Timothy should do, beginning with preach the word. And then from that follows many more exhortations about how to do that and do other things in ministry and in his leadership of a local church. But Paul begins his exhortation with these words. And this is the reference to the last times. Verse 1, I charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, and in light of, or perhaps we could translate these words, or because of his appearing and his kingdom. So in three different ways there, Paul cites uh, things about the end times. He talks about the coming of Jesus Christ, the judge, the living, the dead. He cites uh, his appearing and he cites his kingdom. And from that basis, then Paul goes immediately to the next words, preach the word. All of those preceding words suggest an impetus, a compelling and an urgency to be about the work of the kingdom. It's because of uh, the end times coming. So the coming judgments at the end of the age are to quicken us, to move us, to motivate us, and to compel us to serve God devotedly with all of our lives. So the question is this, what does this have to do with voting in the election which is at hand? And the answer is this, our voting ought to be done in light of the coming judgments that attend the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming to deliver his people and to judge the unbelievers. He's going to be the judge of all people. So even the believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the rewards. But we're thinking here this afternoon of the uh, effect and the coming judgments upon uh, uh, the peoples of the world in light of um, his return. Now, you know, John, uh, you just alluded to the fact that there are various reasons that the choice for president, in my view, and I think also in yours, is clear. The Republican candidates and their platform support the following wonderful, great thing. Traditional marriage, and therefore opposition to gay marriage and other LGBTQ matters. They support the life of the unborn in the womb, and therefore oppose abortion and the federal funding of it. They support freedom of religion. Indeed, our president has set up a uh, bureau or an organization uh, within the government to, pro to promote freedom around the world and especially uh, in our own country. Uh, the Republican candidates and their platforms stand for free enterprise and capitalism, uh, limited government, our system of checks and balances to prevent the growth of government so that it does not become oppressive of the rights of the people. And therefore that implies opposition to socialism and communism, which enlarge the power of the state. Uh, the Republican candidates and the platform support patriotism or nationalism, we could call it, and oppose globalism and the treaty that would entangle us in international intrigue and involvement to such an extent we would lose our own identity and our pattern uh, for American liberal, uh, American freedom. Right. Uh, I believe that nationalism is God's pattern for the nations. Yeah. And ever since the dispersion of the nations from uh, Genesis 11, uh, God's pattern is for separate uh, nations, lest collectively they get together and the end result being opposition to God's program in the earth. Uh, freedom of the seas is another great uh, uh, doctrine that uh, needs to be emphasized and carried forth in light of the fact that uh, our great adversary, China, is seeking to uh, increase its 
hegemony, its control in the South China Sea and elsewhere. So I've just listed four or five uh, various things that are outstanding in regards to uh, the Republican candidate for president and what the platform stands for. And Christians can identify with most of those and say, yes, we agree with those things. However, uh, perhaps the number one issue that gives the clearest biblical support for voting for the Republican candidate for president is his support for Israel. The Bible promises that God will bless those nations that do good toward Israel during history, during the present time, and at the end of the age. I think of two great uh, passages from Scripture, uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. We go back to the beginning of uh, really the Jewish nation with the patriarch Abraham, who soon after coming out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees is given the promise by God that extends far into the future. And it's a tremendous promise with great scope. It is found in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And in summary, God says to Abraham and his uh, future nation, uh, those nations that bless Israel, uh, God will bless. The nations, the people that curse Israel, do harm to them, oppose them, and so forth. God will curse. So God is saying that... Uh, uh, the blessing of the nations is, is uh, significantly uh, impacted by their treatment of the nation of Israel. Now, when we switch all the way to the New Testament, what comes to mind most clearly in this regard is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 25, and it is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. You know, this passage... Matthew 25, along with Matthew 24, is part of the Olivet Discourse. It is Jesus's last words that he spoke to his disciples before being um, tried and crucified and uh, put to death and then uh, resurrected. So that very last uh, discourse is really is significant. Just as we hang upon the last words of heroes or even our own relatives before they die, uh, Jesus' followers gives special attention to his last words. And among them are three great parables in chapter 25, and this is the last and final one. And it's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. Interestingly, uh, Jesus lays out the program for judgment at the end of the age. So he promises that at the judgment when he returns, he's going to divide the nations into two groups. Those nations that have done good to Israel and those believers among the Gentiles doing good means they have supplied food. He lists these very things, Jesus does. Uh, supplied food, clothing, hospitality, even healing, cared for prisoners. Uh, they will be designated the sheep on his right hand. Those are the nations that have done these things for his people. In fact, the terminology that he uses are the least of these my brothers. And the prevailing interpretation of who the least of these brothers is are the Jewish people and the followers of Jesus uh, among the Gentiles. So we're now focusing on the end of the age. And Jesus is saying that those nations that treat his people well will enter into the blessing of his kingdom and eternal life. In fact, the words in chapter 25, verse 34 are really quite far reaching. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, 
forsake your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So God has a plan all along, and the nations will fulfill this or the other side of it. So they will enter into blessing. But the goats that he has divided the other nations into on his left hand, these represent the nations who have not done these good things to the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will judge them as cursed, and they will be cast into eternal life, uh, pardon me, eternal fire, and the torment prepared for the devil and his angels. And again, uh, I quote that verse. Uh, he will say to them in the judgment, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And at the last verse of this parable, uh, the sheep and the goats are divided again with these words. Uh, uh, the goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. One of the most dark verses dealing with the two destinies of peoples. But we're thinking of uh, peoples on a broad scale here as they inhabit nations. These are the blessings and the curses placed upon whole nations. So I come to this question. And now we're reflecting again upon where Americans are at this critical time in late October as we face an election coming up in just a couple of weeks. Which party, which president has done good toward Israel? And the conclusion must be it is President Trump who in just the last couple of years has recognized, for example, that the capital of Israel should be Jerusalem, and thus the USA has moved its embassy there. Another thing that the president has done is to recognize Israel's right to the Golan Heights up in the northeast area of Israel, and that area serves as a buffer against Syria. And then further, uh, within this, just this past year, the president has negotiated treaties between Israel and several Muslim countries which commit these countries to peace and trade with Israel. Uh, these include Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, uh, three uh, formerly hostile countries which now have made peace treaties with Israel. All of these things are promoting the benefits, the benefits of Israel. You know, John, I dealt with this uh, in part in the conclusion of my book in the, called The Apocalypse is Coming, yep. page 378, yep. regarding uh, what the Trump presidency has done and meant for Israel. No democratic platform, it is interesting to me, has called for these diplomatic goals. And as far as I know, the Democrat candidates for the leadership of our country have been silent regarding support for Israel. Other than this, other than this, our own country, no other nation in modern times has been so clear in its support for Israel. It was President Nixon who rushed military aid to Israel during the Yom Kippur War of 1972, which led to Israel's victory. Without that, she probably would have lost. Uh, it was also the USA who provided Patriot anti-missiles to shoot down the missiles that were launched against Israel from Saddam Hussein's Iraq during the 1980s or 90s. So in all these ways, the United States have acted as the benefactor of Israel. And, and you know, there, there's a greater role that the United States has played that uh, complements what I was just talking about, and that is the role of the United States as restrainer. John, you wanted to add something at that at this point. Well, Jim, uh, I recall that you made the case in previous podcasts 
that the restrainer that's spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, is the institution of government. And particularly at this time, among all of the governments of the world, the United States. Uh, there are, of course, a variety of means by which a major nation can be removed from its primary influence on the world stage. And some of those are external. A good example of that is being conquered in war. But a number of them are internal. Perhaps the one that comes to my mind, first of all, uh, is somewhat of a minor student of history, is the fall of Rome, which fell from within. Uh, Jim, the United States capacity to act as the restrainer is largely the fruit and the heritage of the principles upon which it was founded. As never before, it's evident that the results of this election have the potential to fundamentally change not only the course of the nation, but its fundamental principles and moral and political philosophy. Uh, I believe, Jim, that such a fundamental change uh, as being uh, advanced uh, by one particular party uh, in terms of uh, economics, in terms of environment, in terms of the makeup of the court, in terms of the makeup of the Senate, uh, in terms of the abolishment uh, potentially uh, of the electoral college and whatnot, has in and of itself the capacity for the removal from the world stage of the US and its influence for good. It could well open the door for the revelation of the Antichrist and the inauguration, not just of a president, Jim, but indeed of the seven years of the tribulation. Well, you know, you have made a significant statement in the sentences that you've just spoken. I think that uh, this role of restrainer <clears throat> is something that begins locally, that is government, uh, state and local governments exist to restrain evil. And then we can extend that to the national government this is a role that the United States and its uh, smaller forms of government within it has played significantly over the last couple hundred years. And perhaps during the uh, 20th century, the premier role of the United States internationally was that of a restrainer of evil, putting down such a, a wicked uh, things as Nazism in Germany and, and uh, other totalitarian uh, designs exercised during World War II. And then we can think of subsequent wars that the United States has been involved in, virtually never taking territory as a reward of victory, but letting people return to the way they were before or even improve their ways of life and ways of government. And so what is at stake here in regards to our election is truly critical. And uh, we may well be at that point, the turning point, the tipping point of uh, the role of the United States in world affairs as well as within itself. So returning to our original plan here uh, and, and talking point, we're dealing with uh, how the end time events ought to influence the way Christians vote. Um, and, and you know, that role of restrainer, John, I talk about in, in my book, 
uh, in chapter one, I devote a whole chapter to defending the idea that government is the restrainer, government and law. Uh, many Christians hold the view that it is the Holy Spirit, and I deal with uh, that alternative. But nonetheless, what is the role of the United States in the world today, and how does this election potentially affect that in a di diametrical way? So the Christian who recognizes the biblical promise for Gentile nations that I dealt with a few minutes ago, found in both uh, the Old Testament and Genesis 12, and then in the parable of the sheep and goats, of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, uh, this biblical promise for Gentile nations has a clear direction for voting this November. You know, some Christians perhaps cannot vote for Mr. Trump, the man. And I recognize that concern. Uh, but if they cannot vote for him as uh, the man, they should recognize him as the defender of the unborn, the defender of traditional marriage, and most important, the defender of Israel for our nation's eternal blessing. The, uh, the words I read from Matthew 25 point toward eternal blessing for the nations that protect and defend Israel, that bless her and do not curse her. It may well be that at the Battle of Armageddon, that is uh, described in Revelation 19, the United States will be involved there as still the protector of Israel and perhaps with a few other nations, but the totality of uh, the basic totality of the world's armies led by the Antichrist are rising up against Israel and her defenders. And everything seems dark. It seems that indeed uh, those nations along with Israel are gonna be destroyed and just on the, uh, uh, at that moment, with uh, these nations on the verge of extinction, along with Israel, Jesus Christ returns as warrior from heaven. And that is greatly and, and graphically described in Revelation 19 and other texts, uh, for example, in 2 Peter 3 and also in Zechariah chapter 14 in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ returns and destroys the Antichrist and brings to an end the age of Gentile history. All the uh, power of Gentile nations, the rebellion that has gone on ever since uh, the time of the Tower of Babel and through the rise of several empires, the Babylonian, the Media Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires, and then the empire of the Antichrist himself, all of that power and rebellion is finally gonna be destroyed. Psalm two, Describe this quite graphically. And in the meantime, Psalm 2 concludes with the words to do homage to the Son, give place to Him. It is then at the end of the age and at the end of the Battle of Armageddon that the true Lord of Lords and King of Kings will come and reign forever, as Daniel 2 and 7 and other passages in the Old Testament and in Matthew 24 uh, are described for us. So, this is a very critical issue. What we're basically saying is that people, when they vote for a president, ought to think about the import of the role of the United States as the defender, protector, uh, blesser, might say, of Israel, and how that uh, their vote for a president will vote for one party, one person who does support that idea, and the others who do not. So we're here. We have a a divine. Uh, uh, promise concerning voting a particular way in regards to enhancing and promoting the role of the United States 
in its relationship to Israel or not to do so. So it is our burden, I'm sure, John, you share this with me, that uh, Christians think about this wider impact and import of their vote when they go forth uh, to vote for president of the United States. What we're basically saying is that uh, when you begin to vote for president, stop to think about the end time significance of one's vote. The Lord's future judgment of the nations should be a major consideration influencing right. our vote. Any final words, John, that well, you'd like to add to this? Well, if, if that case is not sufficient uh, to raise itself above the uh, surface issue of uh, abrasive personality, I don't know what is. Well, you know, uh, it's not just that, but all kinds of other minor reasons that are often given for why we ought to vote for the president and uh, the vice president and then various congressmen and governors and all of that, all kinds of uh, small little various issues. But this is bringing forth a giant and right. big issue. And, uh, and uh, Christians ought to be compelled to vote uh, according to what we learn about the end times and the blessing of the nations. How do they treat Israel? And uh, the United States has a unique role to fill and has filled that uh, for several generations, but perhaps that is at jeopardy right now, and that's a very, very serious consequence, a very serious matter. Thank you, John, for joining with me in this discussion today. Well, you're welcome, Jim. Um, we, uh, we are marching forward one day at a time uh, to that uh, point in time when we will be able, by the mercy and grace of God, to see Jesus face to face. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Yes. Yes, I was just going to say, we'll conclude with Paul's words that he gives them in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, the, the Aramaic word Maranatha, uh, come Lord Jesus. So this was something on the uh, heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. Uh, every epistle virtually deals with the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, John, you and I wish our listeners uh, to bear upon our breath the same uh, wish and uh, declaration, even so come, Lord Jesus. Okay, but on soon. the other hand, while we are waiting, we are to be occupied in, uh, in God's business uh, as though uh, that, uh, that coming may be delayed. And so uh, we have the responsibility uh, not to sit on our hands for the next two weeks, but or the weeks following, uh, as the Lord may tarry, but uh, too busy to be busy with the Father's work. Yes, and if the nations are supposed to uh, provide food, clothing, hospitality, healing, and care for prisoners, then all the people who are Christians within those nations certainly ought to be at the right. forefront doing that. And that gives us the compulsion for daily living and living our lives out on behalf of our King, right. the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, John, Thank for you, joining Jim. me. Goodbye. Goodbye.